Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Good morning, Christ Fellowship. It's great to see everyone here this morning. Thank you for those that are watching online. And thank you. Thank you just for joining us this morning. It's been an amazing worship morning. I mean, I don't know if you guys felt it this morning, but it's been really powerful, beautiful time. And my prayer is that we continue with that same worship as we listen to God's word so that we allow it to sink into our hearts and then eventually apply it into our lives. We've been going through the whole Bible this year. Since the beginning of the year, we started with the very first book of Genesis. And today we're getting into Ecclesiastes. The word Ecclesiastes means teacher or gatherer, the person who speaks in front of an assembly. The book of Ecclesiastes is actually written by King Solomon, or at least traditionally believed to be written by King Solomon, around the year 935 BC. The reason I say traditionally believed is because there is a little bit of debate. Some people say it wasn't written by him just because it doesn't explicitly say this is written by King Solomon. But there's plenty of um, evidence in the text that leads you, know, leads you to believe that it was King Solomon. So since that's the, the tradition and there's plenty of evidence in it, I'm going to speak as if it was King Solomon who wrote the book this morning. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. There are five books of wisdom in the Bible. The first one is the book of Job, then the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Song, Songs. Um, all five books teach wisdom in a different way. And Ecclesiastes, again, speaks of it in a very unique way. It's addressing a very unique question, which we're going to get into this morning. The style of the book is really interesting. It's written almost as an autobiography of King Solomon. Um, But there are two voices that we hear in the book. The first voice is of the narrator that's sort of, again, narrating the story or narrating the book. But then the second voice is of the teacher, someone called the teacher. So the first one belongs to the narrator of the story who quotes the words of another person called the teacher. And most of the book is written in the point of view of this teacher. In fact, you only hear the voice of the narrator at the very beginning of the book. And then once again, at the very end of the book. To to, uh, make this a little more clear, I want to read the first verses of the book just so you can hear what I mean. Ecclesiastes 1 verses 1 through 3 says this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. All right, so stop for a second. You already hear the voice of the narrator right there. That's not the teacher talking. That's the narrator speaking of this teacher. And then it says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? All right, so already there's there's a whole lot to unpack right there. I don't know if you noticed. It's a little deep right there. But before we get into the depth of it, I just want you to really distinguish those two voices. It's the narrator and the teacher. The reason it's important to understand that is because at the very end of the book, the narrator comes back and says, all right, this is what I, this is my opinion of everything that the teacher just said. He, he summarizes it all at the end. So I want you to understand that there are two voices. Also to understand, all of this is King Solomon, right? He's the one that's writing all of it. But he's, he's separating these two voices for a very specific reason. So you may have noticed that the teacher's words aren't very encouraging. Like, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's got to be, honestly, like, in my opinion, I don't know if you agree. That's got to be the worst way to start a book, right? I mean, that's got to be the most discouraging way to start a book. If, if I read a book and it says, like, let's say it was another book. Let's say I wasn't writing this. I wasn't preparing for this teaching right here. And I had to read this book. If those are the first lines in the book, like, what motivation do I have to read the rest of the book? If it, that means if everything's meaningless, that means reading this book is meaningless too. What am I reading it for? I might as well spend my time doing some other meaningless thing that requires less energy and less thought, right? Why am I going to do this? It's a perfect example of a very important understanding. And this is the understanding. We need to read the Bible with care. You have to carefully read the Bible, very carefully. Because even reading this, some of us might read it and think, 
All right. Joel, this is written by King Solomon, who's the wisest person in history. And, and he's saying that everything is meaningless. Like, how can I go against King Solomon if he's the wisest person in history? If he's saying that everything is meaningless, then, I mean, is it everything meaningless? Or some people might read it and say, wait, wait, wait. This is the word of God. This is the Bible. The Bible is literally God's word. So does it mean that God is saying that everything is meaningless? Most of us fit under another category where we understand God's not saying everything is meaningless. That, that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. We know that God's not saying that. But we, we don't understand what King Solomon is actually trying to say. So what happens is we miss out on what God is actually trying to tell us through the book of Ecclesiastes. So that we don't miss out on the importance of the scripture, it's important to read things with care. One tip, one tip is when you're reading the text, understand the author's purpose. What's the point of the text? Why was it written? Why did King Solomon write this? Did he have nothing else to do that day? You know, was he trying to impress someone? No. What was the purpose of this? Well, we know. We know he was teaching wisdom, right? He was teaching wisdom. As I mentioned earlier, there are five books of wisdom in the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. And it's interesting to note, um, notice they're all in consecutive order in the Bible, right? They're organized in such a way because they're the, book, they're, they're the books of wisdom. If we look at Proverbs, for example, which Pastor Carlos spoke of last week, um, that speaks of wisdom in a very specific way. What does that teach us? It tells us, all right, if you apply wisdom in such a manner, you'll do two things. In general, this is what he was saying. You can avoid all sorts of trouble, and it'll help you find success. Like That's pretty much what the book of Proverbs is addressing. If you do these things, you can avoid all sorts of trouble in general, and you can find success. If you apply it, if you apply this wisdom, you'll bear fruit, you'll have positive outcomes, and you'll avoid a whole lot of trouble. Now, this is obviously general, right? Uh, as Pastor Carlos said yes, uh, last week, it's, not, it's the book of Proverbs. It's not the book of promises, right? They're wise sayings. They weren't guarantees in life. But that is what the book is saying. Now, for those times where it's not a guarantee, right? There are other things that pop up. There's another side of that coin of wisdom. And the book of, let's say, Job would be on that other side of the coin. When, it, when, when things don't go the way you would think they should go, right? When you do things the right way and it doesn't end up the way you expected it to go, when life seems incoherent, when, when it doesn't seem to match the wisdom that we, we apply from the book of Proverbs, there are other books that are addressing that side of wisdom in the Bible. One of them is the book of Job, as I said. So Job addresses a specific question, and it addresses the question, why do uh, bad things happen to good people? Why do we suffer? Especially suffering when we feel like it's unjust or unfair. That's what the book of Job is addressing. Ecclesiastes is similar to the book of Job, where it's addressing the part of life that seems more complex, and it it seems very complicated. Um, specifically, it addresses things like, by the way, I, I have to plug this in. If you want to learn more about the book of Job, you can definitely go back and listen to Pastor Harold's teaching from just a few weeks ago, which he addresses the book. But the book of Ecclesiastes is similar to the book of Job. In fact, if it were a flip coin, it would be on the side of Job and Ecclesiastes while Proverbs is on the other side. Ecclesiastes addresses the monotony of life, not feeling fulfillment in your successes, for example, but also the pain and suffering. It addresses the feeling of meaninglessness, which the teacher already said a few times in just a, just a couple verses. It addresses the feeling of meaninglessness in both, in both success and pain. See, the book of Job is different. It's addressing, it also requires wisdom, right? But it's addressing pain and suffering in those really hard times when you feel like you didn't deserve it. But Ecclesiastes is talking about this sense of meaninglessness, even in success, not just pain although it talks about pain as well, but also in success. How many times have you succeeded in something you didn't feel fulfilled? So that's what he's talking about here. It's trying to answer the questions, why are we here? Does what we do even matter? What's it all for? What's truly important in life? See, this is the beauty of the Bible to me. The beauty of the Bible to me is it's not this book that tries to make life seem all pretty and beautiful and easygoing. It's not. 
It doesn't avoid the, com- the complexity of, the, of life. It doesn't avoid the, the complications of life. In fact, it does the total opposite. It addresses it head on. So much so that it, it, it sets aside certain books to speak of those things specifically. The pain and suffering in life, that seems unjust, but also that sense of meaninglessness even when you succeeded in life. And again, even the pains in life when you question what's it all for. That's the beauty of the Bible. It doesn't run away from it. It answers it. I'd like to read uh, from chapter one again. This time we'll read a bit more to give you a feel of what the teacher is saying. So it's going to be one through nine, verses one through nine. And it says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. By the way, I feel like he just learned that word right before he started writing this. You know when you learn a new word, you say it all the time? You squeeze it into every sentence? I feel like he just learned that word, meaningless. So meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. There's nothing new under the sun. Now you know where it comes from. See, the teacher is speaking of the monotony of life. Everything just repeats and nothing is ever fulfilled. Going down to verses 12 and 14, through 14. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. All right, listen, if we were to continue reading all all the 12 chapters in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, you get pretty much that same message for the majority of the rest of this book, right? Um, So I just want to sum up a few other things that he loves to call meaningless here. So one of them is gaining and applying wisdom. And the reason he calls it meaningless is because he says, with wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. That's what he says. Pleasure and laughter. He says, you know, I I found all types of pleasure in life and laughter. And you know what? He says, they don't accomplish anything. They don't accomplish anything. And then another one is building houses, planting vineyards. These are things that that he says. Uh, Having slaves and servants, herds, flocks. Now, obviously, having slaves and servants we know is a horrible thing. But just understanding the history of it, being a king, whenever you would overpower another, another nation, you would take those soldiers and they end up being slaves. Either they die or they become slaves. Those are their options. And so that's what he's saying about the slaves and the servants, although we know that's a horrible thing. But after all these things that he says he achieved, everything seemed meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun, nothing was satisfying. I want to address a few of the uh, voca- terms, let's say, the vocabulary from this text, just because you see it so often. That word meaningless in the King James Version, you might see as vanity. But the original word is hebel. Hebel actually means, like sometimes you wonder, how do they make these connections? Hebel actually means vapor or smoke. So how do you get from vapor or smoke, how do you get meaningless? Well, I, there's a way to connect it for sure. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. You can think of it two ways. One, like smoke, you can reach for it. Think of, like, imagine smoke were coming out of something. We have the smoke machine, right? When it comes out, right? Imagine the smoke is coming out and you try to reach for it. Can you grab smoke? No, you can't grasp it. You can't grab There you go. Oh, that was cool. Thank you. I like that. If I try to grab it, do you think I can hold it? Am I, like, kind of, like, hold it, like, a little bit? You maybe go get it. I'll go get it. I'm going to go, look, can I grab this? Do you see me grabbing it? Can I, can I hold it in my hand? I can't. I can't grab it. You can't grasp smoke. Uh, smoke. So in one sense, you can't obtain it. You can't hold it in your hands. Right? Similar to fulfillment or an accomplishment that you think you can reach, 
but you never really reach. Sometimes in life, like, you, you're trying to accomplish something that you, that you can't obtain. You can't grasp it. So that's what he means by meaningless. But then secondly, thinking of smoke, think of how it just disappears. It doesn't last forever. I mean, this, we have special smoke. Pastor Carl has got special smoke that lasts for a very long time, right? That's a special, but usually it disappears really fast, right? So this smoke lasts, but usually it disappears right away. In order to see it again, you'd have to create more smoke. In order to see it again, you'd have to, you know, make more. Similar to the monotonous things in life. Think of the monotony in life. Think of the things you have to do every day, all the time. Wake up, you have to eat, you have to breathe, you have to work, you have to clean the dishes, you have to walk the dog, all those things. It doesn't matter how often you do those things. Eventually, you have to do them again. Eventually, you got to do them again. Some of us laugh, right? It's like, man, I got to do this again. Like, I wish I could have a meal that just lasts forever. You can't. You can't. I think, of, I think of the woman at the well when Jesus said, if you drink from this water, you'll never get thirsty again. She's like, of course, give it to me. I don't want to drink again. I mean, I don't want to have to come to the well every single time. Because she thought, you know, I get it. It's like monotonous to do this all the time. But in a similar way, the, uh, there are things that no matter how many times you do, you'll have to keep doing it over and over again. And that's addressing that monotony in life. It's like, what's the point of this? Why do I have to keep doing this over and over again? So that's the meaninglessness. Chasing after the wind, I think that's a little more obvious. It's basically saying it's a waste of time. Like, you know, you try to chase wind. Listen, you guys made me chase smoke. Don't try to make, make me uh, chase wind up here, right? Pastor Harold, I know it was you. Don't make me chase wind up here. You can't do it. It's a waste of time. You can't catch the wind. It's pointless. And trying to do it is just a waste of time. It accomplishes nothing. So whenever the teacher says something is a chasing after the wind, it's another way of saying it's pointless. I want you to try to use that in a sentence today. At some point today, I want you to say, ah, it's a chasing after the wind. I want to see you do. I think some of you will. The last one is under the sun, which again, that should be really obvious. Everything that's, in, that's within earth. Everything that's within earth. That's, that's what he means by under the sun. All right, I have some more reading to do. All right, so be, bear with me. But I think it's important so that you really get a, a, a taste of what the teacher is doing here. And by the way, he's not doing it just to be pessimistic. He wasn't just grumpy that day when he wrote this. This is all purposeful. It really is. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. I read that for the first time I read that. I was like, wait, what do, you, what do you mean? Like your kids? Like you don't want to leave things for your kids? What do you mean you don't want to leave things for the people that are after you? Obviously, in his case, who knows what he's thinking of as a king? Who knows who's going to be king afterwards? But he's already grumpy about the things that he's going to leave and other, other people are going to take over after. And then he says, who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. If I stop talking right now and, and we just left, some of you would probably be happy because you're hungry. But for the, for the most of us, right, we'd say, all right, that was, that was a depressing like, uh, message there. It's, it's a sad message. It sounds really negative. But before we completely, completely dismiss it, I want us to look at this for a second. And I want you to admit something. There's a whole lot of truth there. We all relate to this somehow or some way. Like, like, watch this, ready? Can you relate to being tired of work? If I see one person with their head down right now, I know you're lying. Can you, can you relate to being tired of work? Sometimes feeling like you're questioning the value of your efforts. You're questioning, uh, is this, like, what's, the, what's coming out of this? Like, what's, what's the point of it? Feeling like it's grievous and painful. Can you relate to getting lost in the monotony of life? Right? Like waking up, going to work, going back home, going to sleep, repeat. Like someone, pressed, someone presses the repeat button. Waking up, going to work, going back home, 
going to sleep. If you have little kids, it's waking up, going, going to work, coming back home, trying to go to sleep, trying to put the kids to sleep, going to sleep. The kids wake up, you wake up, putting them back to sleep. You know, but even that is like repetitive. And then finally, staying awake to go back to work, go home and repeat. How about, um, can you relate to working hard on something and wondering if it's worth it? Like imagine starting a business, you know, the amount of effort and work you have to put into it, the hours you have to put into it, you know, the effort, the, the, the stress and, and the thought that you have to put into it. And then you don't even know, like, is this going to succeed? Is it going to pan out the way I hope for? Or how about savings? Like you save money for what? For maybe you're saving money for your kid's college education. Why do you want to save for their college education? So they can get a good job. And why do you want them to get a good job? So they can make money. For what? So they can save for their kids' college education. Like, it's just this repetitive thing. You, it makes you wonder, what's the point of all this? Or maybe you can relate to accomplishing a big goal, like something you've really been focused on. But then you don't get the sense of fulfillment once you finally achieve it. I don't know if you've ever been there. Like you, work on hard, you work on something very hard. You really strive for something. And then it didn't give you the fulfillment. Because maybe you were hoping for a fulfillment that wasn't realistic to what you did. Like, it might have been a great thing, but... You were putting too much hope in that, that sense of fulfillment. And then when you got to it, you didn't really get it, right? Like maybe graduating college is a great thing. But then when you graduate college, you realize, wait, I still have to get a job. This degree is nice, but really it's got to get me a job. And then when you get the job, it's like, all right, I need to progress some other way. What else can I do? Maybe I need to buy a home. After you have a home, I got to get married. I have to have kids. You know, maybe there are other examples that you can think of, but you get the idea where a lot of times, or sometimes at least, our accomplishments don't fulfill us the way we think or hope that they're going to fulfill us. The problem isn't that the things the teacher is saying are not true. That's, that's not the problem. It's not like he's saying things that are untruthful. He's saying things that are very real. The problem is the way they're looked at. We're just looking at it the wrong way. He says it, and he's, he's presenting it in a way that's the wrong way to look at it. But in reality, we look at it the wrong way, too, in life. I want to use a couple of analogies to explain this. And the first one is this. Life is like, I knew you were going to say that. I knew someone was going to say that. That's why I stopped. I wasn't thinking of Forrest Gump, though. Life can be like an amphiboly. I knew someone was going to say life is like a box of chocolates. Life can be like an amphiboly. An amphiboly is a sentence that can be understood to mean more than one thing. So you can read a sentence and it means more than one thing. So I'm going to put some examples up there. And what I want you to do is if you can find the two different meanings, possible meanings, I want you to just throw two fingers up, like throw up a peace sign, all right? If you find two of them, throw them up there so I can see that you got it. So the first one is this. Nothing is good enough for you. Nothing is good enough for you. Any twos? I see one person in the back. So this one is a specific kind of amphibole. I'm sure... Any English teacher here, you can tell me. There's got to be a, a, a name for it, where the two different meanings are, are complete opposites. So this can be either a really nice compliment or it can be a really bad insult. So it could be saying nothing is good enough for you. You're so valuable that no matter what I give to you, it's not good enough for you. Or it could be saying nothing, like literally giving you nothing is good enough because you have so little value that if I give you nothing, it's exactly what you deserve. You see that? It can mean two totally different things. How about this one? Last night, I walked my dog in my pajamas. You catch two? Thanks, you already caught it. Anyone catch the two? There you go. There's another one. And I know you're catching it when you're smiling about it. Because you know. it could either mean, last night, I walked my dog and I was wearing my pajamas. Or it can mean, last night, I walked my dog and my dog was wearing my pajamas. Anyone catch that? It, it doesn't, like, we know what it should mean. It must mean that you were in your pajamas. But it might be that the dog is in my pajamas. All right, how about this third one? Save soap and waste paper. You catch the two? Save soap and waste paper. We're getting better at it. Every time we're getting more hands up. I like this. All right. If I get to a list of 10, I feel like everyone will start getting them. Save soap and waste paper. All right, so it can either mean you can save soap and, as a verb, you can waste paper. Or save soap and save waste paper. Looking at waste paper as like waste as a noun. It's a type of paper, like paper towel. So you can either save soap and waste paper or save soap and save waste paper. And this last one, sorry for any grammars in the house. This last one, um, you'll see it because they're written in two different ways. 
let's eat grandma or let's eat grandma. Do you guys catch the two? Like, you can throw your two. Like, the first one is life-threatening for grandma. The second one is pleasant for grandma, right? Like, the second one, you're including grandma as a part of the family. The first one, you're including grandma as part of the plate. Like, it's two different ways of including grandma. I hope grandma can still move and run away because she might have to. Uh, Punctuation saves lives, by the way. In this last example, the comma changed the meaning completely. Like, completely. Completely. The first one was violent. The, first, the second one was, you know, like a family type of situation. All right. So in the example, the comment changed the meaning, the meaning completely. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher's perspective on life is like not having the correct punctuation. That's the way I see it. When you look at the way the teacher is explaining life throughout the book, it's like looking at life and not having the correct punctuation. To say everything is meaningless it's like reading life without the commas. That's, that's the way of looking at it. It's like you're reading life without the commas. It changes everything. We have to read life with the commas. In all four examples of the amphibolies, though the reader may not be sure of the meaning, whoever said it or whoever wrote it definitely knew what the meaning was. There was one specific meaning. Maybe you just misinterpreted it. And in the same way, you may incorrectly read into the meaning of your circumstance. Like when you get lost in its meaninglessness, it could just be that you're, you're missing the commas. Maybe you're misunderstanding the, the significance or the meaning of your circumstance. But that doesn't mean you're seeing it from the right perspective. You could very well be seeing it from the wrong perspective. Maybe you're seeing it without the commas. The meaning to life may very well be in the commas. God may very well be in the commas, but you're missing it. Could it be you? Like, could you be seeing things the wrong way when you get into this rut? Could it be that you're, you're missing the punctuation? You're missing those commas, those details, right? Could you be missing God in the commas? Here's another analogy. This one is the Wizard of Oz. So the way the teacher speaks of life is like the Wizard of Oz. If you've never seen the Wizard of Oz, the ruler of a place called Oz was a wizard, hence the Wizard of Oz, right? And a group of friends went to the wizard, expecting him to grant their wishes. But what happened? As they meet the wizard, um, I think it was the dog. Was it Otto? Otto was the name of the dog? Toto. Otto. What am I doing? Otto. Same letters. I just had them, like, mixed up. Something wrong. Sorry. Um, So Toto goes and... I was just testing you if you knew it. Um, So Toto goes and opens the curtain... And what did they find out? They find out it's just an old man with a big machine. Like, it was just an old man. What they found out was this. They found out it was just this old man. He turned out to be a small wizard for a big land. That's what they found out. It was really a small wizard for a really big land. The teacher in Ecclesiastes gives a similar perspective to life. Assuming a small God for a big world. That's, that's the perspective that the teacher is writing here. And again, he does it on purpose. It's, it's with a purpose. The phrase under the sun refers to everything that's in this world. The teacher describes all the vanities, the meaninglessness inside of the world and assumes that everything that's important must be visible in this world. With that point of view, all meaning and understanding of life can only be explained by your own experiences and by what you see. It leaves no room at all for the explanation to be found outside of this world. It leaves no room at all for the explanation to be somewhere that's not under the sun. But that's not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is in a belief in God, a belief in Jesus, offers a counterpoint of view, the opposite of the Wizard of Oz. Our point of view is of a small world in comparison to a big God is a total opposite point of view. It's a small world in comparison to a really big God. What we see under the sun, our personal experience, is much smaller than what God is actually doing. Way smaller than what God is actually doing. He's not a small God running a big world. He's a big God running a small world. He's a big God running... So we, can, we can't possibly explain all meaning and understanding just by our own experiences and what we see. Because what we experience, what we see is just a small piece of what God is doing. 
God is doing something way bigger than, this, than your little piece in your little world that he holds in his hand. It's the total opposite point of view. God is doing a much bigger thing than what we're able to see from our point of view. The teacher's perspective, you should see behind me, assumes that the visible is bigger than the invisible. That's what the teacher is presenting here. He's saying the visible is bigger than the invisible. But the Christian perspective is that the invisible is much bigger than the visible. What we don't see is bigger than what we do see. We believe in a God that's run a big God that's running a small world. The teacher's point of view is of an older person with plenty of life experience, but doesn't see things beyond earth. He doesn't see a big God. He either sees a small God or even no God possibly. And let's be honest about something. If there is no God, if God doesn't exist, then it's true what he's saying. Life is meaningless. If there's no God, how can you say that there's any, life, there's any meaning to life? You can't. Everything that that is here then has an expiration date. Any good you do, any bad you do has an expiration date that doesn't exceed your life here on earth. A hundred years from now, 200 years from now, a thousand years from now, whatever you do will be completely forgotten. Like that's the reality of life without God. And that's exactly what the teacher is saying. That's the truth. If there is no God, then everything is meaningless. The teacher's words are true. Everything is utterly meaningless. It has no real consequence past his life. I think the question, is there a meaning to life, is a really interesting one. I do. See, a lot of times when we ask questions, those questions come from a problem or a need. Like, that's where questions come from. They come from a problem or a need. So I think the question, is there meaning to life, actually uh, feeds some evidence to the the question itself. Now, I'll tell you why. We ask questions in response to a problem or a need. Questions are born out of those problems or needs. If we ask about meaning in life, that's evidence of a need for meaning because that's where the question's coming from. If you're asking about, you know, is there meaning to life, that's already hinting to a need for meaning. That's already hinting to a desire for meaning. But then where does it come from? It's got to come from an actual meaning. So the question itself is being drawn out from something that's deeper. The question itself itself is evidence that there is, in fact, meaning to life. Or else, where would the question be born from? The reason we desire meaning and feel like we need meaning is because there actually is meaning. I don't know if you follow that. So the question, is there meaning to life, is sort of like drawing water from a well. But then you ask, is there any depth to this well? I mean, think about it. You You just drew water from the well. So drawing water from the well proves that there is some measure of depth. You just, you just drew water from it. And in the same way, asking the question, is there meaning to life, is you're drawing that question from a deeper place, proving that there is some type of depth to life. There is a measure of depth and meaning to life. A desire for meaning is drawn out from a need for meaning. The search is being drawn out from something deeper. If you're searching for meaning this morning, if that's something that you're, you're kind of wrestling with, whether you're here or watching, watching online, you know, I get it. Like, that's, that's something that we all have to wrestle with. Every single person here has either decided that or is going to decide that at some, at some point. Maybe you're wrestling with it now. But I'll tell you just personally, I think, I believe personally, the only place you can find fulfillment to that question is in the Word of God. The only place you can find that, like truly, truly and honestly, the only place you can find that is in Jesus. You can find some temporal fulfillments, for sure, you can, but they don't last forever. The only place you can find the real fulfillment of that question is in God, is in the word of God, is in Jesus. It's the only place you can spend your entire life looking for, and we do, we do. You spend your whole life, your whole life, Spending is, is spent on either looking for it or living in it, but it's always related to meaning, right? No one just lives aimlessly, even if they claim to. No one does, right? You wake up for a reason. You eat for a reason. Everything you do is for a reason. No one just lives aimlessly. But I tell you, the only place you can find the, the true depth, like deep answer is in Jesus. If you read through the entire book, 12 chapters, there's plenty of wisdom that you can learn 
It's too much for us to go over this morning, but I just want to look at a few more verses. And the next one is Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 11. And it says, I said that backwards, chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I'm going to read that again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God created us with the concept of eternity tattooed in our hearts. Like you were designed with this desire for eternity in your heart. We're thirsty for so much more. We long for something that's permanent, something that lasts. That's why we're so disappointed when things don't last. Good things don't last, and we get so disappointed because we are created with this inner desire for forever. It's a concept. You know what's the crazy thing about eternity? A crazy thing that's about forever? It's a concept that only exists in this world inside your heart because it doesn't exist anywhere else in this world. Look around. Where does eternity exist? Where do you see it? Everything is eroding as we speak. Everything is falling. Even our flesh is dying as we speak. But eternity lives inside your heart. God created you in a way where it's already existing inside of you. That's why you want it so bad. Because it's real. It's a real thing. You don't see it outside, but it's inside. That's why you want it so bad. This is the only place where it exists. We want the good things to last forever. Yet, since we have no background knowledge on what forever even means, we have zero experience with it. We don't really know what it is. We just have this, this desire for it. And the reason God made us with the desire for it is because he wants us to search for it. And when we search for it, we find him. That's why it even exists inside of our hearts. C.S. Lewis has this quote. He says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And when he says another world, he doesn't mean like Mars. Like Elon Musk better not steal this text, this, uh, this quote here and say, that's the reason for us to move to Mars. That's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about another physical planet. He's saying it's something that this world cannot satisfy. It's something deeper than this physical world. He's referring to something spiritual. He's referring to eternity. He's, re- he's referring to forever. We were made to last forever. In fact, we will last forever. There's another quote that C.S. Lewis has that I don't have written here, but he says, you will never meet a mere mortal. You'll never meet a person that's only going to live temporarily. Why? Because we are going to live forever. The question is, where are you going to live forever? You're either going to live forever in the presence of God or you're going to live forever in the absence of God. And let me say something. I've heard people say, uh, you know, they, they've experienced hell on earth. And I get it. We've experienced some horrible things in this world. Just turn on the news. You see it. But let me tell you, you know what hell is? Hell is the complete absence of God. Like, I don't know what people might think hell might be. Hell is the complete absence of God. Here, even if you feel like you're dealing with a little bit of hell, I tell you, you still feel loved. You still feel connections with people. You still have some type of relationships. Imagine what the absence of God is. And you'll dwell there forever if you don't, you know, obviously, if you're not connected with God. But no matter how you look at it, we are destined for eternity. We have it inside of our hearts. That's how we were made. God has set eternity in our hearts because eternity is in our future. Ecclesiastes, this is like the final lesson that we finally hear the narrator speak again. So the teacher's done talking. Now the narrator's talking. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. In other words, not only was he wise, but he wanted to share that wisdom. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there's no end. And much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including, including every hidden thing whether it is good or evil. I just want to break down uh, some of those verses. 
The words of the wise are like goads. A goad is a spiked stick that was used to drive uh, cattle in a direction that the shepherd wanted them to go. So the teacher here, right, as he's saying this is meaningless and that's meaningless and this is meaningless, well, all he was doing throughout the whole text is he was pushing the reader, which is us, he was pushing the reader to challenge you to answer this question, what's the meaning to life? He was pushing you in a direction. He wasn't necessarily giving you an answer yet. He was pushing you in a direction to, to deal with this question What about this life thing that we have? What's the point of it? That's what he was trying to do. And he kept doing that until he finally gets us to the point where at the end, King Solomon gives us the response that he wanted to give us. The next part, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books, there's no end, and much study wearies the body. Here, the readers warned to be careful with words that are not from the teacher, but from others. Like everyone wants to tell you the meaning to life. You know, go on YouTube, you'll find a million people trying to tell you, oh, I know the meaning to life. I go, to, go to any um, bookstore or whatever, you know, even online, and you'll find millions of books that are trying, trying to tell you the significance to life. But what he's saying is, we can end up overstudying the topic. At the end of the day, we can't understand everything, every little detail. We can only understand what God has revealed to us. That's it. We can't understand everything because the invisible is greater than the invisible. In the, in the end, God's the one that has the big picture. And now, verse 13, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. This is where that goad is finally removed from, your, from the reader's side. And uh, because we finally reached the point where they want us to to get to. And and Solomon finally tells us there is meaning to life. This is where he finally says there is meaning to life. And this is the meaning. See, it may be meaningless if there's no God, but there is a God. Nothing fulfills our purpose more than when we honor him and respect him and follow his commandments. This is our job. If you've ever wondered what's your job? This is your job. Your job is to honor God with your life. That's your duty. That's your job. Whatever you do on a daily basis, whatever your work is, that's your work. Your job, your, your, what you were designed for is to honor God in everything that you do. That's why you exist. If you've ever wanted the reason that you exist, why do I exist? Here's your answer. I exist to honor God. That's it. And you dig deep to draw from that well whenever you wrestle with that question. Why am I doing this? What's the purpose of all this? I know I'm here to honor God. So if I'm doing this, I need to do it to honor God. If I'm doing that, I do it to honor God. That's why you exist. And I know we wrestle with it, but that's why. It's your greatest responsibility. It's to please God with your faith and honor him with your deeds. You can't please God without faith. Your deeds are empty at that point. But it's to please God with your faith in Jesus and then to honor God with everything that you do starts with faith for sure. And then you honor him with everything they do. Even when life isn't jiving, whether it's in success or in suffering. I mean, listen, let's be real. Even in success, how many people have we seen that are successful and they feel completely empty? Because they're missing it. They're missing the meaning. They're missing those commas. They're missing the meaning to life. They're missing that understanding that your job is to please God with your faith and honor him with your deeds. It's not just in the pain. It's in, it's in when, you're, when you're doing well too. Even when things feel pointless. Like a vapor or smoke, you can't grasp. Nothing is meaningless. Your greatest responsibility is to honor him, whether it's at work, at home, at church, anywhere else, and the good and the bad. That's what we're here for. Finally, King Solomon says this, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. This is the final answer to the question, is there meaning to life? And what Solomon says is, what God says is, everything counts. That's what he says. Everything counts. So to think of a basketball analogy, my foot's on the line, everything counts. That last shot on the buzzer, everything counts. When I got fouled, everything counts. When, they fa- when, when I fouled someone, everything counts. That free, that free throw that I made, everything counts. The free throw that I missed, everything counts. When, I, when, when they goaltended against my shot and they didn't call it, everything counts. The missed foul call against me, everything counts. God says everything counts. Now, life examples. Nothing of life. The time I spend watching TV, everything counts. The lies I've made, 
everything counts. Every time my anger takes control of me, everything counts. The time I was abused, everything counts. Right now, what I want you to do is go into your own little space with God and see what he's telling you that counts. What is it that God's speaking to you in your own heart right now? As I even say this list, think of your own list. Think of God, what God might be speaking to you and telling you everything counts. The time I was abused, everything counts. The times I've hurt other people, everything counts. My failures, everything counts. My successes, everything counts. My pain, my worry, my fear, everything counts. The things I do on the computer, everything counts. The things I do on my phone, everything counts. All of the injustices done against me, everything counts. My, my successes with my children, everything counts. My mistakes with my children, everything counts. My pride, everything counts. When I've sought forgiveness, everything counts. God says, everything counts in life. Nothing is meaningless. Everything is going to be considered, weighed, and judged by God. It's worth noting that the way King Solomon ended Ecclesiastes is very, very similar to the way the words of Jesus pretty much end the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, 12 through 15. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, I'm the alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those that wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Here Jesus is telling us everything counts, good or evil. Nothing we do is meaningless. Whether it feels monotonous, whether you feel like it doesn't have any value, whether you feel like no one's watching, whether you feel like it doesn't hurt anybody, whether you feel like no one protected you, whether you feel like it didn't matter, everything counts. Nothing you do under this sun is meaningless. Nothing at all. Your faith, your lack of faith. Your love, your lack of love. Seeking God, not seeking God. You're turning away from sin, you're diving into sin. The time you spend talking to God, the time you spend running away from God, Loving others, hating others, helping others, hurting others. Your forgiveness, your grudges, and your resentment. Your selfishness, your selflessness. God is saying, Jesus is saying through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's saying it through the book of Revelation, he's saying it through your very own life. Everything counts. Nothing is meaningless. Even when it it feels like it has no value. Right now in this morning, I want you to understand, even if you feel like you have no value, Jesus is saying everything counts. Whenever you feel that, I want you to think about something. I want you to look at that cross. And I want you to think, did Jesus die on a cross for a world that means nothing? Would that make any sense? Like, would Jesus come down to earth for a meaningless world? Would Jesus come down this earth for a meaningless people? Would he come down for a meaningless life at all? Not at all. What Jesus did was this. He said, I'm going to step out of eternity. And I'm going to come into this temporal world so that I can submit myself in a way that I can pull you out of this temporal world and bring you into eternity because that's what you were designed for. If you ever wonder about meaning in life, all you have to do is look at the cross and you see it. And God is saying it's, it's all meaningful. Everything is worth it. Everything, the good and the evil, it's all going to be judged. It's all going to be weighed right through that cross. That cross is the filter. The question is, what do you do with the cross? What do you do with it? Because that cross is saying you're meaningful. That cross is saying you're valuable. But do you accept it? Do you accept what Jesus did there? Everything counts. Please him with your faith in Jesus and fear him, respect him, honor him with your deeds. Because everything counts. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for not being a shy God. No, you go head on and you address the things that, that seem incoherent with with you know, other parts of, of, of what we learn from you. You know, we learn this wisdom that we can apply in our lives through Proverbs, but then, but then we know those aren't promises. So there are times where that application doesn't get us the result we want. And then we question, what's the point of it? But you answer that, you address it. You address it, Lord. And when you tell us this, look at you. You tell us, look at you. You tell us to, 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 to remember that you're the big God. 
and, and we're, we're in this small world. The invisible is greater than the visible. Lord, you have everything under control, and we barely understand even what we see. So I pray, God, that we remember your words, that everything counts, that nothing is meaningless. The teacher was, was using a goad, a verbal goad, to push us in his direction, to really be confronted by this question of meaning, of meaning in life. And Lord, you tell it very clearly at the end. Everything counts. Everything's going to be judged by you. Everything has to be filtered through you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we can look at the cross and find our value there, our identity there, our meaning, our purpose, everything we do in life, Lord. I pray we can do this through the filter of Jesus. I pray we do this in a way that we're always conscious of this one thing, that our job is to please you with our faith and honor you, respect you, revere you, fear you, serve you, love you with our deeds. We thank you, Jesus, for this morning and all the great things you do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Enjoy your Sunday. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch On Demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.